Father, I pray that as we come this morning and we begin to look at texts that to some are controversial, to some they're overwhelming in their complexity, um, to others they're just fantastic. And I pray that you would simplify them so that we would see in them um, the gospel of Jesus. We, we would see in them the application of the gospel of Jesus, that we would be both uh, encouraged in our faith on one hand, on the other hand, uh, that we would be awakened in our faith that we at some level would count the cost and would also, uh, whether we are Christians or not, uh, grapple with the implications of what is said here, what will be said. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I also pray for myself that you'd be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen. Well, today's the day when we sort of jump off of the cliff as far as getting into the book of Revelation. And for some reason, as the deeper I got into chapter 6, there was a couple of things. Um, the first thing is I was going to do all of chapter 6 today, and at some point I realized there's no way I'm going to get through all of this, and so I cut it in half. And even cutting it in half, I could probably go for an hour or two more. Um, so since it's the second service and you don't have anything to do, why not? Um, the other thing is, as I was looking, it, I, I was really awakened to some things. And it, for some reason, it made me think of, of the controversies that you've seen on the news, not r- very recently, but in the past few months, about Christian athletes, namely Tim Tebow. I mean, so, some things came up with Tim Tebow that I've actually thought all, all the time. In other words, you know, you, you know the, the scene, let's take him out of the picture since he's controversial where an athlete, you know, is a, the, the team is down by uh, six points and the, the, the receiver goes out for a 70-yard pass. He goes and it's barely, you don't know if he's going to make it, and he barely catches it and his toes fall in, right in the, the, into bounds and he makes a touchdown and the team wins the game and then what does the person do? Right, they point and they praise the Lord. It's all him, it's not me. What I've always wondered is why they don't do that the rest of the time. So in other words, imagine the scenario where they go out for the pass, 70 yards, their team is there's six points behind, and just as the, the ball comes, it touches his fingers and glances off into the, the crowd, and they lose. And as soon as that moment comes, he looks up and says, all you. Praise the Lord. Everything comes from his hand, nothing by chance, but everything by his fatherly hand. And no matter whether it's a good thing or it's a bad thing, I'm going to praise him. So here you will go. I think if they did that, it wouldn't be as controversial. On the other hand, it would take a lot of time because most you're either doing one or the other, I guess. Why do I bring that up? It's because as the deeper we get into the book of Revelation, the harder things get. And they don't, I don't mean they get harder to understand, although that, there's something to that. The harder they get in the sense that, that what Revelation teaches us at some level is that things are probably going to get harder before they get easier. And that what it means to be a Christian at some fundamental level is to suffer. And what does it mean to praise God in all situations? What does it mean to look in the, at the person and work of Jesus and constantly be overwhelmed by it, even if it means that something bad is happening in your life, even if some hardship is coming upon you, even if uh, the government seems to be, to be going crazy in your opinion, or, or the taxes, or whatever your issue is, 
you look about you and you say all of this is from God's hand and all of it is being used to bring about the culmination of all history and the consummation of all things and a new heavens and a new earth. That's what we get into when we consider the book of Revelation. Up to this point, um, we looked last week at chapters 4 and 5, I mean over the past few weeks, and today, chapter 6, we're going to jump in. And chapter 6 is just a continuation of 4 and 5. In other words, remember John got called up into heaven to see this grand vision of God on the throne, chapter 4. And in chapter 5, he sees the lion from the tribe of Judah is actually a lamb who was slain. In chapter 6, he's still there, and it's just the next thing that he sees. So before we jump into chapter 6, there are a few things I feel like I've got to remind us of because I think it'll make it easier to understand So the first thing I just wanted to talk through again is what is it? What is the book of Revelation? Remember, it's a hybrid, really, of three kinds of literature. The first kind of literature it is it's an apocalypse. An apocalypse is is just means to reveal something, and it's the same language that you would use if you pull back the curtain. So in a sense, what the book of Revelation is doing is Jesus is pulling back the curtain so that we can see the, the reality of the world around us. In other words, things right now aren't what they seem. In the book of Revelation, we see the reality. The next thing, it's also prophecy, John tells us. And in the, the New Testament and the Old Testament, what prophecy does is it doesn't always, and almost, it, let me put it a different way. The, the primary purpose of prophecy in the Old or New Testament is not necessarily to predict the future. When you think prophecy, that's what we tend to think. Mostly what prophecy does is it's, is it's trying to get some moral decision out of us. In other words, the prophets come and they say, thus saith the Lord, and they say, you know, either you need to have faith or you need to repent of some sin or you need to repent of your idolatry. But the purpose of prophecy is to move us to some action. And the book of Revelation is given to us for that. It's not just to tell the future. I think there are some future items in there. But primarily it wants to move us and take us someplace. And the next thing, the third thing, is it's a letter. And for the sake of today and the next few weeks, that's really important to keep in mind. It's an epistle or a letter. And what do I mean by that? It's just that if you remember that the book of Revelation is one letter to seven churches. Remember verse 4 of chapter 1, John says, he opens the letter by saying, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you. And he ends it, the last verse says, grace and peace to you all. The whole book of Revelation is a letter Now, why is that important? Well, for for one thing, a lot of people tend to say, well, the first three chapters are letters to the churches, and then after that, it's all prophecy about the future. That's That's not what it says. What it says is that the whole thing is a letter. John says that. And why is that important? Because if you remember, all of the churches struggled with some things. One thing they commonly struggled with was persecution and how to deal with the world around them and how to deal with things when they get hard. And so almost by definition, what comes after chapter 3 would be given to encourage them. And therefore, they would have had to understand it at some level. Otherwise, it would be a waste of time. In other words, what I'm saying is John didn't write a letter to seven churches and expect that they would not understand a word of chapter 4 through 22, that some Christian somewhere way in the future would, would, would get this because it's all about the future. It would have meant something to them. Would they have understood it completely? Probably not. Does anyone? Probably not. 
but it would have meant something. So understanding that it's a letter is very important because as you jump into here, if you remember and you constantly are sort of anchored in the fact that this was given to people for a very practical purpose and it was to encourage them, then it helps, I think, keep, keep you sort of moored instead of sort of drifting all over the place when you jump into the book of Revelation. Also, I need to say something about structure because um, at least the way I'm going to handle this is different than some people. Um, it's the typical way that our tradition handles it. Um, basically, as you, we, starting at chapter 6, you're going to see three sets of seven. The whole book, by the way, is seven sets of seven. But for the next few months, few months it's, you're going to see three sets of seven. You're going to see seven seals, you're going to see seven trumpets, and you're going to see seven bowls of God's wrath. Sort of one after another. Really, it's different than that, though, in the sense that what you see with, say, for example, the seals, you see six seals, and then you see an interlude, and then you get the seventh seal, which sets up the next thing. Six trumpets, and then there's an interlude, and then the seventh. But that's important because the question is, is, is what's being said here, is it chronological or is it something else? And I think it's something else. A lot, most, a lot of scholars, more and more scholars, are, are believing this. I believe this, that what you see going on in the book of Revelation is this whole idea of what scholars call recapitulation or progressive parallelism. Right? Those are fancy words. What do I mean by that? Basically this, that... What you see in the seven seals is one period of history that starts when Jesus is risen and taken, you know, he's risen from the dead and he's gone to heaven. That's what John sees. And he sees him breaking the seals. And that takes us all the way to the end of history. And then when you get to the seven trumpets, that repeats itself. But it's a little bit more intense and it's a little bit different angle. And then we get to the seven bowls of God's wrath. Same history, but from a different angle. And it's all taking us from Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven to the end of time. Now if you think, hmm, where else, is there any other place in the Bible? That's someone I would expect you to challenge me for that. If you've ever read the Bible, you've run into it in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Right? Genesis chapter 1 tells us a story, and then what happens in Genesis chapter 2? The story is told again, but it's told from a different angle, and things get a little bit more specific. You ever read the Gospels? The Gospels are another example of this. You have one period of history, one story, but it's being told from all four different angles. So there are different places in the Bible that you could see this. And so what happens in the book of Revelation, I think, is you see the first seven signs, and then you see the second and the third, and each time they get a little bit more intense, each time you're given a little bit more information, and each time they take us a little bit more as far as detail into the future. And in other words, it's sort of like if you've ever, I don't know how, how it looks out here because I've never really been to the beach here, um, I was raised in South Florida. If you've ever seen the, the tide come up on the beach, you, you know it doesn't just rise. In, in some senses, in, in, it's imperceptible. What you see is it sort of rolls in and it rolls back a little bit. And it rolls in and it rolls back. And every time it rolls forward a little bit more. And in some sense, that's what each of these series of sevens are doing. They, they roll in and they go back a little bit and then they roll in just a little bit more. And so they take us further and further toward the end. So with all that said, we need again to jump 
we need to spend some time. The reason I had to cut the sermon in half is because there's so much background that you have to give to the horsemen. I'm going to talk briefly about three Old Testament passages for the horsemen. And what I'm leaving out is, are things from Joel, Hosea, Daniel, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Exodus, Kings, both the books of Kings. All of those books have something to say about the four horsemen. The ones that John primarily seems to be focused upon, that where, the, where the language almost comes word for word, are the books of Zechariah and the books of Ezekiel. And the other night, I forget how it came up, but I told my family, we were talking, and I said, you know, it's hitting me. As I, as I study the book of Revelation to teach it, that if someone completely mastered the Old Testament, that if you knew the Old Testament inside and out, and just you could pull from your mental Rolodex any passage at any time, you would, could read the book of Revelation and you would be completely fine. You wouldn't even have any questions, hardly. That's how much the book of Revelation is rooted in the Old Testament. Another way to put that, if you remember what we, I pointed out last week, is what John is giving us in the book of Revelation is what he sees. He's trying to come up with, with language to describe visions that he's having. And he is so rooted in the Old Testament that he uses the language of the Old Testament to do that. And so where do you see four horsemen come up? It, exactly like you do in the book of Revelation almost? In the book of Zechariah. In the book of Zechariah, chapter, chapter 1, verses 8 through 15, Zechariah has this vision of four horsemen. And what God does is he sends out the four horsemen, same colors, by the way. He sends them out to check on the the lands, the the nations that are not Israel. In other words, he sent foreign nations to punish Israel. And he sends the, the horsemen out to check on the foreign nations that he sent to punish Israel. And they come back and the, the horsemen tell him that the nations are at rest. In other words, they sort of are mocking God. They're punishing Israel, they're mocking God. And so in chapter 6, he sends the four horsemen out. This time it's chariots, it's like armies of these horsemen, out to, to bring judgment upon these nations. And the language has, it says, says the horses are straining at the bit to do it. And so what do you see there? What you see with the horsemen in the Old Testament, particularly in Zechariah, is that what God uses the horsemen for is to bring his vengeance and punishment upon the nations that refuse to acknowledge him and the nations that are oppressing his people. So that's one thing, that the, the horsemen come to bring judgment upon the people who both scorn God but also oppress his people. But John sort of does a mashup here because he almost quotes word for word Ezekiel 14. And in Ezekiel 14, because of Israel's own idolatry, God says, here is how I'm going to punish you. And what he says to them is, I'm going to send to you sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence. In other words, because of Israel's idolatry, they are going to experience God's wrath, God's punishment. And what the purpose there, though, is he says that some people, what, what the punishment will do is it will punish people who are idolaters and it will purify the faithful. In other words, there will be a remnant. He says, even if, if Noah and Job and Daniel were in Israel at that time, they might escape, but they would still have to bear, they'd still be in the same environment as everyone else. In other words, you know, the Bible says that rain falls on the just and the unjust. In this sense, God's punishment, his, his destructive acts, fall on the just and the unjust as well. What's interesting about Noah, Job, and Daniel is none of them are Israelites, by the way or at least Daniel was, 
but they're outside of Israel. And so what the mashup here that's happening is on one hand, you're going to see in the book of Revelation that God's vengeance is being sent out upon the nations, even now. Remember, Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed now, on one hand, and on the other hand, the church is being purified through the same act. That John has mashed up both God's vengeance upon the nations and his purification of Israel, and that's what he sees when you look at chapter 6. I hope it becomes clearer as we jump in. So let's look at seal number 1, verse 1 and 2. He says, Now I watched when the Lamb had opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering to conquer. The first thing before we jump into the rider I want to point out to you is there are two ways to look at what happened there when the, it says one of the creatures came out, and he said, he said, I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. Now, either one of two things are going on there. Either the, one of the four living creatures is summoning the horse, He's saying to the, to the white rider, come, and the rider shows up, or he is doing what you see every other time in the book of Revelation when you hear the word come used. The word come in the book of Revelation is almost always used in the context of Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, or Jesus says, I am coming quickly. I personally think what the, the four living creatures, because they represent worship, is he is actually praying. Come. In other words, he's not summoning the horse, he's summoning Jesus. Jesus, come. And it's his prayer that actually puts into motion the the sending of the white horse because what Jesus is doing is at the end of chapter 5, Jesus begins to open the seals and all of these things to bring in the end of the world are beginning to happen. And so he has said, come, and the white horse comes. Now what you also need to keep in mind is that the white horse, red horse, black horse, pale horse, they all come from the throne of God. In other words, they come at the behest of God, and they don't, God doesn't just allow them. You're going to read where, where it says it was given to him, it was given to this horse, it was given to that horse. The word there is not, has nothing to do with God allowed the white horse or the red horse to bring war. The word there actually means the role that was given it to play. In other words, it's a, when it says that God has given to, to this or that, it says the role that he has given it to play. So all of these horses are under the command of God. That will become clearer too. Let's look more closely at the white horse. What do you learn about the white horse? The white rider, he has a bow and he has a crown. And, and in particular, he looks something like this guy right here. Now why is that important, that the white rider looked like a Parthian archer? And the answer is this. Remember, this is a letter to the seven churches. The seven churches were all at some level experiencing persecution or trouble with Rome. And the Parthians were the only people in the world that Rome feared. They were the only people that had conquered Rome at different places. And so when you talked about the Parthians, the Romans would sort of get their hackles up. And so if you're one of the seven churches and you hear this, that this white rider is coming on a horse with a bow and he's wearing a crown or a funny hat, you, you immediately would, could not help but think the Parthians. That even the Romans, even the people that are, are oppressing you ought to be afraid of something. 
Even the people that are giving you trouble will someday also, you will have vindication upon them. We don't have time to get into that. That's the next time. But, but vindication is coming for you. And the white horse, it says that he comes, the word used for him is that he comes conquering to conquer. And a lot of people, the way the horses break down is in a very logical fashion. Because what we're going to see is the horses at some level are symbolic for just all of the badness that is inherent in humanity. And part of the badness that's inherent in humanity is that nation is constantly trying to conquer nation. That there's never been a time of peace in the history of the world where some nation has been trying to conquer some other nation. That it's just part of inherent to the human heart to want to conquer and to control. So lots of folks think that that's what's going on here as well. That's what's being communicated. Look at seal number two, verses three. He says, when he opened the second seal, I heard the living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Almost every person that I read on this, and I read people from all different traditions, say that the red horse equals war. The red horse equals war in the Old Testament as well. Now why is that important? Well, what's the logical outworking of people wanting to conquer one another? is they would attack, they would, they would wreak war on one another. And see, part of the thing you have to think about, if you were in one of the seven churches, or even if you're part of the church now, as you're reading the book of Revelation, you could say, well, these things are happening now. These things have always happened. In fact, since, since just in the 20th century, if you want to know whether war has been a big part of human history, over 100 million people have been killed in wars just in the 20th century. A hundred million people. So you're going to see, if you get into the book of Revelation deeply, that if you had any kind of thought that humanity is inherently good, Revelation is going to challenge that. Because I'm going to give you a bigger number in a few minutes from now. So is war a problem? Yes. Is it the logical outworking of conquest? Yes. What do we have next? The third seal. Verse 5 says, When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be the voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. So what does it mean for the black horse to have a pair of scales in his hands? Most people, when you think scales, you think, what, justice, right? And that's true, it was for justice, but not legal justice. How that, what that evolved from was justice in the marketplace. That you were going to get, if you bought a pound of flour, that you would get a pound of flour, and it would be measured out on scales in front of your eyes so that you knew what you were going to get. And so this third rider comes through with scales, which would have made everyone think food, and then he, you hear this other voice coming that says, I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the creature saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. The bottom line on that phraseology is just this, is what it cost for a quart of wheat or for three quarts of barley was about 18 times what it cost when this was actually written. On the other hand, it says, do not harm the oil and the wine. And so what most people, folks think, if you remember in 92 AD, there was a famine, 
And Domitian ordered all the vineyards cut down to grow wheat for his soldiers. And there was such an outcry that he said, do not harm the, the wine. An edict was actually released that said that. So some people look at that and say, well, the poor people were suffering. And on the other hand, the rich people still had their wine. They still had their oil. But the bottom line about the third horse is that he brings famine. And that's the logical outworking, right? If people want to conquer, they, they're then follows that as war, and the necessary outworking of war ultimately is famine. No food. I think 50 and 20th century, if I remember my figures correctly, about 58 million people have died from famine. There's famine going on right now. I tell you, yesterday when I was in my office running, looking up numbers, it was extremely depressing. Because it just becomes overwhelming to see all of the evil that has been perpetrated. And you begin to think that some people will think that someday what's going to happen is there, some evil is going to come upon the world and then God's going to bring the church out that we won't have to experience it. Everything that you see happening here, there's no word at all that says the church is removed from it. This is all happening. And that takes us back to the Old Testament. Remember, the nations are being punished. And the church is being purified. The same act does two things. We'll see more of that a little bit later. What's the fourth seal? It says, verse 7, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. That's the reference, by the way, to Ezekiel. I don't know if you've ever seen the television show, uh, I think it's called After People on Nat Geo. After People basically speculates what would it be like if all the people suddenly disappeared, if people were just killed. It's amazing how quickly things would grow up and the wild beasts would take over the, the earth. It's pretty wild. And so what's going on here also with the pale horse? The color there is not just pale, it's actually more like a, the, the language is pale green. In particular, it's the color of a corpse that's been dead and laying there for a while. That's what it's usually used to describe. It's, it's sort of this pallor that comes over a dead person. And so to get more detailed with the fourth rider. So who, who is the pale rider? Right. Clint Eastwood, of course. Um, <laughs> knows what snazzy dresser he is. To, to be fair, I only had a choice between Clint or like the, the Grim Reaper on a real bony horse, and I thought that would more get a laugh. All right. Who is the pale horse? Pale horse but for one, he's the only horseman that's given a name. His name is Death. And he's the only horseman that actually has a companion named Hades. And the picture here is that death is just going through and slaying everybody and Hades is coming up after him collecting the corpses. Now the good news is that their authority is limited. He said only a quarter of the earth will be affected by this. So what's the, what is going on here? Basically the fourth horse is really a summary of the first three horses. And in reality it's a summary of man's inhumanity to man. What happens when, when God removes his hand and lets people just treat one another the way they would naturally treat one another? Death and destruction. Death and destruction. If you don't believe that, 
If you look at deaths caused by war and oppression in the 20th century, the number's around 203 million. And that's conservative. I pulled the names. This is from The Economist. And I'll just read you the top 10 or so. Um, in the 20th century, Mao Zedong in China killed between 49 and 78 million people. Stalin, 23 million. Hitler, 12 million. Leopold II of Belgium from the Congo, 8 million. Tojo in Japan, 5 million. Ember in Turkey, million and a half Armenians. Pol Pot, million seven Cambodians. Kim Il-sung, million six North Korea. Mengistu in Ethiopia, a million five. Gowan in Biafra, a million. Brezhnev, 900,000. Hussein, 600,000. If that makes you feel grim, then I, I think you're feeling the right thing. When you look at the horsemen, what you see is God, on one hand, letting uh, human nature take its course, and on the other hand, he is purifying the church. Have you ever seen the Twilight Zone episode, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street? It was the first season, episode 22. I'm, I'm sort of ashamed that I know that. Um, in May of 1960... And in the, in the Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, basically you have a perfect suburban neighborhood. It's set in the 60s. It's in black and white. Everyone's out in the yard. People are washing cars and people are throwing the ball. And in the sky, a light passes and then an explosion is heard. And all the neighbors come out to see and they're speculating what it is. And one of the boys says, you know, in one of my comic books, it says that this is how aliens will invade us. And my comic book also says that the aliens will impersonate a human family in order to infiltrate us. And immediately, everyone starts looking at each other. And then someone says he's going to go out and check where the, the explosion. So one of the men leaves, I forget his name, and they begin to accuse one another. And another man goes and tries to start his car, and it won't start. And then he gets out and walks away, and as he's walking away, it starts. And all these things, are lights are going on and off in people's houses, and before long... I don't want to spoil it for you, but they start killing each other. It just turns into mayhem. And then the scene pans back, and there are two aliens that have invaded. An old one and a young one. And the older one says to the younger one, See, with people, you don't really have to do anything to conquer them. You just have to leave them to their own devices. And so in some sense, all the horsemen are. Is God punishing humanity, but really he, all he has to do is leave them to their own devices. Now, what does that mean for the church? I had put a little summary of the horsemen because in some sense today is a summary of what's going to come, or it's, it's an intro. One thing, being a Christian doesn't immunize us from trials, tribulations, or suffering. In other words, being a Christian does not immunize us from trials or tribulation or suffering. I had a, one of my professors, one of my, a good friend of mine, Steve Brown. He, he's a person who always taught me when in doubt, go ahead and say it. And he always said, he, said, he thought that when, when someone who's not a Christian got cancer, that God gave cancer to a Christian just so the world could see the difference. That's a pretty interesting statement, isn't it? But being a Christian doesn't immunize you from suffering and trials and tribulation. It's, it, it's always been that way. Secondly, that God often uses the same events to punish the wicked and purify the saints. The same event he will use to punish the wicked and purify the saints. Third, God often uses the same events to harden some to the gospel 
while softening others. You ever wondered about that? That some people can experience the same thing and praise God and other people can say, how could he do this? And if you need an example, the two thieves that were crucified with Jesus are a great one. Both of them were experienced tremendous suffering, crucifixion. One of them looked at Jesus and said, if you're really the Son of God, you could get us down from here. And he complained and he mocked Jesus. And the other one defended Jesus. He said, he has done nothing wrong. The same event affected two people completely differently. But really the most important thing to get as we dive in deeper to Revelation is that God's way of advancing his kingdom most often is suffering. I hate to say that. Honestly, I do. I wish that all I had to do was just preach and sit back and enjoy the fruit of the, of the gospel. But what you learn in the book of Revelation is that more and more is that suffering is God's way of bringing about the end of the world. That suffering is his way about, of bringing redemption. If, if you don't believe that, just look at the cross. Remember what I read to you at the beginning. He said, John says, I wept because no one was will, able to open the seals. And I looked up. And I saw a lamb who was slain. That the way God conquers our sin, the way he will ultimately renew the world, is not through the crushing power of the lion, but through the slain, shed blood of the lamb. That it is Jesus' suffering that is the, the key to our redemption. And ultimately, it's the suffering of Christians, you're going to see it in the book of Revelation, that is used more than anything else to spread the gospel. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as we enter into to chapter 6, it feels like we, I've just had to stop. But I pray that as we look at next week where the martyrs are crying out and other people are crying out uh, to, to be delivered, um, that more and more we'll see uh, that the role of suffering is something you've called us to. That the role of suffering uh, tells us that a servant can't be above his master. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see opportunities to deny ourselves, eyes to see, opportunities where we might identify with those who suffer, that we might bring them in to your kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen and amen.